From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there, and now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, a very good afternoon to you. It's Kate Turkington. We're talking travel. We're talking with a fascinating person who I'll introduce you to later on. And, of course, a bit later in the program, we'll be talking Books, and I've got a fantastic book that will really make you think to talk about. But I, I want to start the program today with a bit of a personal gripe. Um, I've always followed TripAdvisor and looked at their reviews, and very occasionally uh, I put a review up myself. But I don't know if they're losing their mojo or what. First of all, one of my personal gripes is, you know, they put out these lists best this, best beach resorts, best da-da-da. They just put out a list of the best destinations in the world. Do you know what they chose as number one? I cannot believe that this was objective. I cannot believe it. They, they said that the number one destination in the world is Dubai. No ways. How, how can Dubai be a better destination than Rome or Paris or London or Mumbai or uh, Beijing or any of the ancient, ancient uh, cultures? I mean, I've been to, I've been to, uh, Dubai several times. No, okay, there's wonderful entertainment, there's shows, there's water parks, there's all kinds of things, but there's no history, there's no culture in Dubai. So I'm seriously wondering about the objectivity of TripAdvisor. And what made me even more suspicious, if that's the right word, word I got onto their most recent list Best nature destinations in the world. Now think about that. Best nature destinations in the world. You will never in a million years guess what they had as number one. Mauritius. Mauritius as a nature destination. They had Kruger Park at about ten. They had Kathmandu. Kathmandu in Nepal as the second best nature destination in the world. Strangely enough, strangely enough, only yesterday one of my daughters got a call from Kathmandu and it was from a Johannesburg medical doctor who travelled with me to Tibet many years ago and he loved the trip so much he'd gone back. He was on his way back to Tibet via Kathmandu. Couldn't get hold of me. Got hold of my youngest daughter, Tiffany, said, where's Kate? How is she? What's she doing? He said the earthquake in Kathmandu had done a lot of damage and there was still a lot of damaged buildings and chaos around. How can TripAdvisor have Kathmandu as the second best nature destination in the world. Fairness, they did have Serengeti as three. They didn't have the Marseille Mara at all in their uh, top list. They had Mallorca, Mallorca as a nature 
destination. I mean, Mallorca is full of millionaires, yachts and lovely uh, cathedral, of course, but a nature destination. So I think TripAdvisor has lost the plot. This is a very personal comment, but I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm going to stop looking at their best list because I don't know. I don't know how they... Uh, arrive at them. I don't know how they can objectively call Mauritius the best nature destination in the world. The mind boggles. Anyway, that's my personal gripe, and I'm glad to have got it off my chest. And I hope you, uh, I hope you don't uh, mind there. By the way, they eventually got to Kruger Park, but before they got to Kruger Park, they Nairobi. Nairobi. I was in Nairobi about three, four months ago. Nairobi as a nature destination. Hello. Come on. Pull the other one. It's got bells on. Okay. I'll be back after the break. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, I'm back, got that gripe off my chest, forgive me, as I say, very personal views, but then we all have our favourite places we travel to or would like to travel to. I want to tell you a little story. This happened to me just uh, just about three months ago. It's six o'clock in the bush and the sun is just beginning to set before another spectacular African sunset. Our African sunsets are um Beatable, and I've been around the world. I can say that in total confidence. I'm with one of my daughters, Tara, and a 10-year-old grandson called Sam. And we're driving with Ranger Daniel along a deserted road in Medique, that game reserve in the northwest province, malaria-free, about four and a half hours from Johannesburg. I'm sure many of you have been there. I'm actually staying on this occasion at Rolani Safari Lodge, which is a beautiful, beautiful uh, safari uh, lodge there. But let's go back. Driving along, deserted road, the sun is setting, and suddenly my daughter shouts, stop! A pangolin. A pangolin. I have been looking for 50 years for a pangolin. And there, pottering along on the edge of the road, is the world's most endangered animal, the pangolin, the one that every knowledgeable safari-goer has on their bucket list, on every game ranger's wish list, too. People go for donkey's years and never see a pangolin. It's the most trafficked animal in the world. Why? Because it's wrongly believed that its scales are not only an aphrodisiac, but that any part of it can cure deadly diseases, which is absolute rubbish. A pangolin's scales are made of the same stuff 
as our fingernails, and your fingernail and my fingernail is not going to act as an aphrodisiac, nor is it going to cure cancer. So the most trafficked animal in the world at the moment, critically endangered. Look, I've been on safari dozens and dozens of times. It's what I do. It's my job. I had never, ever before encountered this strangely beautiful animal. I mean, you don't think of a, pa a pangolin as beautiful. But here it was. I'm sure it was a she, actually. She rolled herself into a ball as we approached her because that's their defense mechanism against predators. They roll themselves into a ball and their scales, which are quite sharp, would fend off uh, predators. But after a little while, we were the only people. There was Tara, my grandson Sam, the ranger Daniel and me. After a bit, she unrolled herself and she walked into the long grass and she rested there. She was trembling trembling uh, slightly and we bent down and we felt her scale she we didn't threaten her in anyway because she hadn't curled up into a ball again and the shells were so beautiful I say shells I, they were her scales but they were like seashells they were so beautiful with a kind of scalloped edge to them and eventually her little face emerged and it was a dear little pointy face with little bright shining eyes, exactly like a creature out of a Beatrix Potter book, like a Mrs. Tiggywinkle or, or some little nursery rhyme creature. Lovely little face there. And we stood there in absolute awe because to see a pangolin is very, very uh, special. It's almost like the holy grail of safari. Uh, goers. I mean, we've all spotted lion, or if you've been to the bush, you've spotted lion, you've spotted giraffe, but to expect the unexpected, which I think is the same in life as well. You can't, you might plan, you might plan your safari, you might plan your life, you might plan your next week, but really life is always about expecting the unexpected, uh, isn't it? And, of course, there were loads of birds, and, of course, there were lions, and, of course, there were all the other things you find in the bush. And as because it was getting dark, a couple of vehicles were coming along the road. There were um, safari staff or game lodge staff going back to their various lodges, and we left her. We, we quickly left her and went back to her own vehicle. Why? Because that's about a million rand on the hoof. If you capture one of those, it's worth hundreds of thousands of rand, all for the wrong, all for the wrong uh, reasons. But that's really one of the most spectacular uh, moments of my life, seeing a pangolin in Medique. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there, and now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM. Okay, while we're in Medique, I mean, there are over 30 lodges now in Medique. Medique is a great place to go to because it is 
as I said to you, just four and a half hours from Johannesburg, and of course it's malaria-free. So it's a good place to take kids, it's a good place to take overseas guests. You can't go in as a day guest, uh, you have to be staying at one of the 30 lodges, and the lodges range from five-star, like the one I mentioned earlier, Rulani, which is run by a Swiss, a Swiss couple. Very interesting story, actually. They retired, and they wanted to find somewhere in the world where they could build a lodge, and it's a long story, but eventually they found that place, and they found it in Medique, and they have built a very beautiful uh, five-star lodge there. But in Medique, of these 30 lodges, there really is something for every budget. You can go from five-star to moderate range to a favorite of mine, I suppose the most eco-friendly lodge in Medique. If you're really looking, if you're really, really eco-conscious and, and looking for a, an authentic wilderness experience, then there's this little bush camp right in the middle, has prime position in Medique called Mosetla. M-O-S-E-T-L-H-A, after the Mosetla tree. Genuinely uh, eco-friendly. Why do I say that? There's no running water. There's no electricity, although you can get your cameras or your uh, tablets, whatever. They will take them off and charge them for you somewhere. You stay in a little wooden uh, log cabin. There are ablution box. You have... Bush showers. What is a bush shower? Water is heated in a donkey boiler. You remember those old donkey boilers? Some of you will, where you heat water in a big metal drum uh, with wood firing it. You get your hot water, you transfer it, or what one of the staff will help you, put it in a, a canvas bucket. You hook your canvas bucket up to the ceiling of your shower and you turn your shower on and it's remarkable it does about five minutes actually of uh, shower but totally uh, eco-friendly uh, there so you've got your twin cabin on stilts all the food is either cooked on the open fire or in those big I don't know what they're called those big round cloth pots uh, rather like the old hay ovens of, of many, many years ago, you put all your food in a padded cloth pot and, and it makes a, a stew or, or, or cooks whatever in there, but all the food cooked over open fires. There are absolutely, it really is totally eco-conscious and the camp isn't fenced. You have one trip elephant wire round the fence, which is elephant high, uh, and elephants do occasionally bump into it and make a great bellowing sound when they do. But what it means is a game of all kinds, wanders, of all kinds, wander through that camp. So there was one notable occasion, I wasn't there, uh, when Caroline Lucas, the owner, took a photograph of wild dogs at one side of her chalet and lions at the other. Look, when it's daytime and there are people about, it's unlikely you're going to uh, run into uh, a lion. And if you do, it's going to be more surprised uh, than you. But this really is the 
the real thing. I went to a similar lodge many, many moons ago in Ecuador that I must tell you about uh, sometime, also properly eco-friendly. Um, so if you feel you can manage getting up in the middle of the night and going to the ablution block, and if you're looking, as I say, for an authentic wilderness experience, then that Masetla Bush Camp is certainly the place for you to be. They've got loads and loads of repeat guests, um, and it's much, much more affordable than uh, most of the most of the camps in uh, uh, Medique. There isn't a pool. Uh, the lighting at, at night is low because you're using either solar lamps or oil lamps. But my word, you really do feel you're in the wilderness there. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas. The driest deserts to the icy poles. Kate Turkington has traveled there, and now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM. High FM 101.9, good afternoon again. And as you know, we travel with Kate on this program, and this afternoon we're going to the Virgin Isles. And joining me from the Virgin Isles is Rabbi Julia Margolis. She's a progressive rabbi who served here in Johannesburg from 2008 until 2023. She was born in Russia, but her family made a Leah too. Israel when she was 12 years old. So a very good afternoon to you or good evening to you, Rabbi. <laughs> good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Kate. Rabbi Julia Margolis, you belong to the reform movement of Judaism. Could you, could you talk us through that? Because I know we do have many listeners who aren't Jewish. So I know it's a very complex question, but could you give us sort of 101 on how it differs from more traditional Judaism, for example? Thank you, Kate. Yes, of course. And as you mentioned, it is a very big question for um, very long interview, but I think the major difference that I want people to understand is that progressive movement recognizes the role of women. There is equality between men and women. Women can be rabbis and fulfill the same role as men. Um, men and women sit together um, at the synagogue. Um, girls are having the same Torah reading as if it was for a boy. So that really in one, you know, sentence, the major difference. And we believe that we evolve and we progress with the time. So therefore we um, understand that people do not leave sometimes near the synagogue. We do allow people to drive to the synagogue on Saturday as we believe, you know, time change. And unfortunately just impossible to live near the shul, for example. It, it, again, it's just one small, tiny note, but um, I That's, hope it helps a little bit. Yes, it does. And how strong, again, is progressive Judaism, for example, the reform movement here in South Africa? We are a very strong movement in the world and in South Africa. We um, 
have congregations all over the world and um, there are congregations in uh, Pretoria and in Johannesburg, in PE, in Durban, in Cape Town. So we, we are everywhere. <laughs> I believe that also there are many people who might consider themselves reform in the way of thinking and the way of living their life, but um, they would belong to an Orthodox synagogue. So that's okay. why it's very hard to give numbers that one could say this or that. So you could actually be traditional in practice, but some maybe your thinking could of perhaps course. be reform. Yeah. Of yeah. course. Of course. I mean, this is how in the end of the day, we are all children of God. We all belong to the same religion and um, you can that's the beauty of Judaism you can learn you can that's the beauty of reform Judaism is that you can choose what questions do you ask and when you struggle with God and when you struggle with Judaism you do not follow it blindly just because my ancestors did it but you go and you ask questions and you permitted to do that and encouraged to do that. I believe that to ask questions is very, very important. How difficult is it to be a woman, Rabbi? You know, I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking, for example, let's take the Anglican Church, how right. difficult it has been for women to become priests and are still fighting to get to the upper echelons of of power, right. if you like. How how difficult was your personal journey? I will be honest with you, it was very difficult. Um, I am very grateful for this journey because it, it taught me really a lot. But I can't I can't lie. It was very, very difficult. I believe we still have a very long way to allow women in Rabin, especially, I have to say that South Africa is a very conservative community. Jews in South Africa, even when they, they belong to progressive movement, some of them are very, very conservative in their thinking. Therefore, it might look good on the paper, but not on the actual everyday life. And, uh, there were cases when people would ask that woman rabbi will not officiate a wedding or a funeral because again female rabbi in understanding of in the context of south african jewish community is still something new unique and how do we actually you know what do we do with this um phenomena that again right now i am in the u.s and it's absolutely common normal you know the same as you would go to female doctor or male doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. You, you judge those professions, no people according to their ability to do their work. Not my hope is that you're not judging them according to the gender. So, um, it's been an amazing journey, as I said, but it was not easy at all. <laughs> you learned a lot along the way. What did you learn? That you do need to follow your heart and you need to do the right thing, even if it will cost you, let's say, the popularity or you will uh, be dealing with difficult questions from 
the community, from the colleagues, from family, from friends. And uh, um, in the end of the day, it's our personal decision. Do I follow the path of um, what is the right thing to do or do I follow the path of what is convenient to do? And why did you choose that path? Which one of them? (laughs) (laughs) The path to become a rabbi. I always felt that, and I don't want to use the cliche word of calling, but, you know, just an absence of another word, I will use it. Um, My role model, my mother is a rabbi. I I grew up in the reform movement in Israel, and um, I saw many female rabbis, very strong women around me, and I was surrounded, and I really blessed to have family that encouraged me to follow the path that um, my heart desires. Therefore, I presume if I wanted to be a physician or if I wanted to be an astronaut, I could do that if my heart would be there. Um, but my heart was in Jewish history. My heart was in Jewish community, in, in learning liturgy, in learning the Bible. And, and this is what I wanted to follow. And what did your studies involve? It's it's a very, very long process. So you have to have, let's call it the secular studies, and also you have to have the religious um, studies. So I think once we counted the years that it takes to uh, complete, and um, it's actually sometimes longer than to become a doctor. It's really, really long process. Um you can apply only when you have already uh, finished your first degree. You have to have master's and then the rabbinical school. Um, it, it's a different um, um, if, if one goes to the school in Israel or if somebody studies in the U.S., the, the length would be different, but um, it involves a lot of learning. May it be the knowledge of standing in front of the audience. May it be knowledge in Talmud. May it be learning how to chant verses from the Torah, how to read Aramaic in Talmud, how to to officiate life cycle events. Um, so, so it's a very lengthy per, uh, process. Now, I know that in addition to spiritual leadership, I know progressive rabbis such as yourself are very often involved in social issues. Have yes. you? Yes. T- tell us about your involvement. Um, I was involved in social um, action center in back in Israel. I was chair of Sacred, which is South African Center for Religious Equality and Diversity. Also, because I very big uh, believer in interfaith dialogue and learning about different religions and to try and find what are the things that connect us and not things that um, divide us. And I believe that when we learn together, when we break bread together, when we um, study about festivals of each other, it enriches each of our lives. And therefore, it was always a very, very, was and is today very important subject in my rabbinate. And in in the States, in the Virgin Isles, what's, again, a very general question, but women's rights again. How how do you feel about women's rights? 
I don't want to tackle the political situation right no, now. No, 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 because not at all. I, right. That's not I, what I'm asking. No, that's right. not what I'm asking. I'm asking a very the general I'm question. It, the reason I'm saying it is because, I mean, these days there is so much going on here. Um, yes. With human rights and with women's rights. Therefore, it's a, as you can understand, very uh, sensitive and hot subject. Um, but what I do feel from rabbinical point of view is that American communities are more, much more open than still communities in South Africa or um, in certain countries in Europe or even in Israel. I'm not saying that everything is very easy on a path here, but I would say that communities are much, much um, more open-minded than any elsewhere. Um, this community that I started to serve now, I am the first female rabbi since the, the, the opening of uh, the special place, but I believe it's just the beginning and um, it's, it's a path that we all need to take and it's an education that we need to show to our children. We just kept coming up to celebrating Passover and, and the idea of the Seder is that we ask our next generation what is why is this night is different than other nights. It's just because we were telling the story of the Exodus and we teach our children. And the same with Rabinet and the same is with women in Rabinet. Do you feel you've been blazing a trail? It's <laughs> a very good question. <laughs> Are you a trailblazer? You must be. <laughs> I never intended to be one. Let's put it that way. But if life puts me in this situation, then yes. Now, you were born in Russia and your family made the decision to go to Israel. Uh, you yes. were what? You were 12 years old when you right. left Russia. How difficult was it for you to make that move? I mean, any immigrant going to right. a new country is difficult. It is. And um, I remember once years ago, I was reading a research about um, what are the top stress-related issues in the life of um, the person. And immigration was, in, I think, one of top five, together with death of loved ones and divorces. And um, it was top five, if I remember correctly. Um, it's not easy in any age. I, I see it now with my children that we moved from South Africa um, to to the U.S. And um, I was a bit younger, but it was different community at all. My children are blessed because they speak English, so at least, you know, they did not have yes. that problem. When I arrived in Israel, I did not speak one word of Hebrew. Um, and it was a tra traumatic uh, moment, I would say, for a 12-year-old child. But again, we learn from that and um, it makes us stronger. I presume I sometimes think what would have I been doing if my parents did not leave um, Moscow? Where would I be studying or working and how my life would be? And of course, I don't have real answers for that, but um, I do know that it, those um, experiences really shaped um, who I am today. Sometimes um, there is this very, you know, famous sentence that children should be children and, and 
um, let them play. Um, I would say that my childhood finished at the age of 12. Um, I, I did not, I, w- I was a different young adult already. I wasn't a child anymore because um, it just shows how strong one can be until you go through that part, that path, you don't know it. Mm-hmm. And your children today, what do they think of their mum being a rabbi? <laughs> <laughs> I will be honest. I hope, I believe they are um, very proud and it makes me very, very happy. Sometimes um, I could, um, I, I know that my daughters talk very highly about me um and it it makes obviously my heart happy because um they see that everything is possible and also they do see the real me as their mom and they see me as a human being and they know that sometimes there are difficult days or sometimes and like anyone else they see me as a human being and uh it's interesting because sometimes it's very hard to draw the line so where is the rabbi part or where is the mom part and uh i see it now with my eldest daughter and it's, it's it's very it's fascinating um and the youngest is very proud and uh she asked the teacher now at school and it's not jewish school in, in south africa they were in king david schools yeah it's um if i would translate it into um our south african terms it would be more like Crawford schools came and they asked um, if I would be willing to come and to talk to children about Reform Judaism, about my journey. And I said, of course, and I will be happy to. And uh, it's really, you know, warms my heart to know that my girls kind of promoting um, this journey and they, they very big part of this journey, of course. A final question. Would you do it all again? Yes. I would, with all the controversies, with all the troubles, with all the sad moments and with happy moments. Um, yes, I would. I would. Thank you so much. That's Rabbi Julia Margolis talking to us from the Virgin Isles. Thank you. Thank you so much. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there, and now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back, 101.9 High FM. I'm Kate Turkington. Time now to talk about books. And this book has just come across my desk, and I have been fascinated by it. It's called foolproof and the subtitle is why we fall for misinformation and how to build immunity and it's by Sander van der Linden and it looks at fake news it looks at misinformation he's one of the Sander van der Linden the author is one of the world's top experts on fighting misinformation. And he actually, in the book, talked about the psychology behind its power and how 
we can protect ourselves. So he talks about everything from fake news to conspiracy theories, from pandemics to politics, and he says that misinformation may, the, may be the defining problem of our era. And he starts off with a story. Listen. Kirkby is a relatively small town in the borough of Knowsley in the northwest of England. Boasting a little over 40,000 inhabitants, it's the birthplace of poet Robert Atherton, the actor Stephen Graham, and a man you probably never heard of until now, Michael Whitty. I'm actually reading from the book as I speak. Whitty is a dad of three. He volunteers for a local charity and he operates an airport parking facility. He's also been developing some unusual ideas, slowly but steadily, with the assistance of a trusted friend, the Internet. On Sunday the 5th of April 2020, Whitty and two accomplices drove out to Cooper's Lane, Kirkby, where they set fire to a phone mast owned by Vodafone, which he put on a pair of gloves, forced open the equipment box, and used some fire lighters to set the whole thing ablaze. This wasn't a heat-of-the-moment decision. Later, police investigations show that the arson was carefully premeditated. Why? Witty was convinced that the latest 5G, fifth-generation phone masts, were somehow linked to the coronavirus pandemic that had recently seized the world in its grip. And when the police got the phone, this is Kate now not reading, when the police got the phone, got the information from which uh, is phone, it showed he'd been researching 5G technology, discussing it with others in online chat for, uh, chat rooms, and he was convinced that 5G phone masks were spreading COVID. Now, that's the kind of misinformation that Sander van der Linden writes about in his book. And there are uh, there, read it because it's it's complicated and there's a lot of information. But I want to just talk you through. He says there are one, two, three, four, five, six ways how we are being manipulated. Whether we're being manipulated by the internet, by fake information, by politicians, by brands, by advertisers. This is how we're being manipulated. First of all discreditation, run something down, say it's not good. He uses the example of Hillary Clinton is gay. That was a bit of misinformation that was put out when she was running for president. bit of misinformation we've had recently in South Africa, Andre Dereta from ESCOM is a liar. That misinformation is being spread very widely at the moment. So that's one way we're being manipulated. Another, emotion, emotion. And he cites the example, the, Sh the Chicago Tribune had a headline, Healthy Doctor Dies Two Weeks After Receiving 
COVID-19 vaccine. Totally untrue. His death had absolutely nothing to do with the COVID vaccine. If you've read the article, he actually died of a heart attack. It had nothing whatsoever to do with vaccine. So emotion. Think of all those dog things, all those dog stories you read on Facebook or starving orphans or grieving whomsoever. Ask yourself when you read something, are you being manipulated emotionally? Are you going, oh, shame, as we so often do? Another method, he says, polarization. You drive a wedge between people, us and them, the other. So look at America at the moment, the, the divisiveness, the division between the Republicans and the uh, Democrats. In South Africa, xenophobia, the others, the immigrants and the South Africans. Look at anti-Semitism, Jews and non-Jews. It's a very, very easy method of manipulating people through polarization. Impersonation. What's impersonation? Do you remember lots of people said the moon landings were a fake that it was all done. I think it was in Arizona or New Mexico, and they, they, the whole thing was a fake. Loads of people believed that. Hundreds of thousands of people believed that because it was said over and over again. And, you know, if you tell a person a thing long enough and over and over again, research shows that they actually come to believe it in the end. And then, of course, you've got your conspiracy theories, your conspiracy theories. Um, I've got an example uh, here. Conspiracy theories, he writes, have gone mainstream. A recent YouGov Cambridge poll, for instance, this is in the US, found 37% of Americans think that a single secret group of people control world, world events. 29% people think the government is secretly hiding aliens. I mean, this is, this is for real uh, people. 33% think that harmful vaccine side effects are deliberately being hidden from the public. And 27% people think climate change is a hoax. Do you remember Don, Donald Trump and his early remarks about climate change, more or less saying it was a hoax. Hundreds of thousands of people believe it's not happening. Why? Because we are being manipulated by fake news. And then trolling, of course. What does trolling mean? Trolling is when you're fishing. You throw out a bait. You throw out a line with a hook on it and you catch something at the end, and he uses an example of a fake troll, of a fake woman, who said, and it went viral in the States, I was in my kitchen baking, and I was thinking how Putin is doing a really good job. During the presidential election, uh, Trump is the most pro-black presidential candidate that was pumped out to hundreds of thousands of people over and over again. So next time, when you read a bit of news, maybe that comes up 
on the internet or comes up as a meme on your phone, not on a good newspaper like Daily Maverick or whatever, but in less um, reputable newspapers, wherever they may be in the world, uh, think about these ways we're being manipulated. Is somebody being discredited? Is so-and-so rubbish? Is he, she, no good? Emotion. Are your emotions being tweaked? Are you made to feel sorry or happy or miserable over something? Polarization. Are people being separated one from the other? Are they being picked on as a group? Impersonation. The moon landings. Were they a fake? So much fake news, right? Conspiracy that there's some big conspiracy going on, that the world... I, I interviewed David Icke, the conspiracy theory, uh, theorist, mad as a snake, English guy, who believes that we've all got some kind of serpent-like uh, element to all humans and that the world is controlled by a, a bunch of elite people. load of absolute uh, uh, rubbish. And then, of course, trolling. Don't believe a, a meme that comes up saying, I believe Putin is doing a good job in Ukraine, or I believe Putin is not doing a good job. Just read carefully. And I think, as I told you a few weeks ago, Finland, Scandinavia in general, that has the best, arguably, the best education system in the world, teaches primary school children how to recognize fake news, misinformation. So if you can, it's a long read, great book to give us a pretty, great book to read and keep us bedside reading. It's called Foolproof, Why We Fall for Misinformation, How to Build Immunity by Sandon van der Linden, and it's published by Fourth Press. Well, that's all. For this week, see you next week. Lots of love, lots of life. Travel safely, look after yourselves and look after others too.